0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and that we are alive in it, and that we can hear from your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you may give us much wisdom as we consider what your word says about the way of salvation, the way of true happiness, and we pray that you may help us to comprehend this and then apply it to our lives. We pray that you may give us much of your grace this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, what makes you happy? What is it that you think of, if you need to be happy, that you will embrace to find true joy? We've just had Easter, and so one of my sources of joy was very much a part of my life, and then of course, we focus on Christ. And I've I must say that as a pastor, but one of the great things about Easter for me is chocolate, of course, which is the focus for most people, uh, in this world. They do not, they minimize Christ, they minimize his death and his resurrection, but they love the chocolate side of Easter. And so do I. I don't think as a pastor, chocolate is beyond me. And chocolate is one of my great sources of joy. And over Easter, people are very much aware that I am someone who values chocolate in large slabs. So they don't get me eggs, they don't get me rabbits, which are hollow inside and have very little chocolate in them. And so I actually got multiple blocks of chocolate this Easter from those close to me. One and a half kilos, I actually added it up. And about half of that is probably gone. We're a week after Easter. It is just something that I seek for joy and I love it. It brings me happiness. But there is a downside to eating so much chocolate as well. It After you eat 200-gram block, it starts to feel kind of queasy in your stomach. And it seems to make all other food in the house very unpalatable. And there is that other downside of, what do they say, a moment on the lips forever on the hips. And, uh, of course, there is that weight gain that comes with that happiness of chocolate. So is there another source of joy in this world? Is there another way to happiness that is far greater than chocolate? Can provide. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at happiness, true joy, and where it can be found. And that comes from one of my favourite Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I thought I'd take a break from our series in Hebrews uh, because I'm about to go on leave and do one of my favorite psalms preach on one of my favorite psalms before I go on leave and that is Psalm 32. And so I encourage you if you've got a Black Church Bible, open it up to page 549 and we're going to work through this psalm which I think is one of the clearest parts of the Bible on what is the source of true joy. How can you be happy? It's one of those psalms that I actually like to walk non-Christians through. If non-Christians come to me and they say they want to know the way of salvation and they're struggling with sin, I've actually walked them through this and it has been helpful for them to see what is the source of true happiness, what is the source of true joy. And so what is the source of true joy? What is the source of happiness according to this psalm? Well, that brings me to my first main point this morning, Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. If you want to follow my main points, they're there printed on the back of the church bulletin. And the first is that happy are those whose sins are forgiven. And that is told to us in verse 1 of Psalm 32. Page 549, Psalm 32, verse 1, we read, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. How do you get blessed? How do you get happiness? Another way of translating that word blessed, it can be to say happy. Happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven. What is the source of joy in this world? To have your sins forgiven. To have your sins forgiven. But why does having your sins forgiven bring happiness? What does it mean to be forgiveness? Why is that a source of joy? Well, the rest of the psalm actually unpacks for us What it means to be forgiven of our sins. And it tells us in different ways what it means to have your sins forgiven. And the first way that it says that our sins are forgiven, it says that our sins are covered. It says in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. If you are forgiven of your sins, it is as though your sins are covered over. And the idea there is one that we can relate to in that often there are things that are unsightly and that we don't like and we want to just cover over them. And as I said in the children's talk this morning about bins and how we put things that are unsightly, things we don't like, in the bin and we cover over it so that it is no longer in our sight and so then it is no longer in our minds. And that's what sin is. Sin is this disgusting thing that we don't like. Yet if we are forgiven of our sins, it is as though they're put in a bin and covered over. That is what the psalm says. But that's not the only thing that being forgiven means. Being forgiven also means that God does not count our sin against us. In verse 2 we read, Blessed, happy is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Our sin is like a debt that we owe to God. And it is a terrible thing to be in debt. We don't like being in debt. We'd rather not have a loan from the bank. We'd rather just be able to buy what it is we want. But instead we get these debts from, from the bank and it is a wonderful thing when you can actually pay that debt off and you're no longer in debt to the bank. And Jill and I are looking forward to having our mortgage finally paid off one day. It'll be a happy day. It'll be a day for rejoicing that our debt is paid. And that's what it is to be forgiven of our sins. That's why we are happy when our sins are forgiven, because our debt to God will be paid. It says it will no longer be counted against us. Imagine if the bank rang you up and said, that credit card debt you have, that mortgage debt you have, is no longer counted against you. That's what it means to have your sins forgiven. God tells you, I no longer count that debt that you owe against me. Also, another way that we can see that being forgiven means a wonderful thing in our life is that mighty waters cannot reach up to such a person. We read in verse 6. Go down with me to verse 6. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. If you're forgiven by God, then the mighty waters will not reach you. I've never actually been in a flood where waters keep on coming up and up and up. I've always lived in places that are not on flood plains, but I believe it is quite scary when floodwaters come and they start to come up to the doorstep and then they start to come across the doorstep and then more and more of your possessions are flooded and then you, even your own life, can be in danger. And that's what it's like to not have your sins forgiven. But to be forgiven of your sins means the floodwaters cannot reach you. You're up in a high level and the floodwaters cannot reach you as it says there in verse 6 of Psalm 32. So that's another way that we can see that our sins are being forgiven is a wonderful joy to us because the floodwaters cannot reach us. Now, what are the floodwaters if we are sinners? Well, it's pain and suffering, particularly the suffering that comes with eternal punishment in hell. It is a terrible thing to consider that we are sinners, not because just of sin in itself, but because of the pain that is associated with our sin. The suffering that we deserve, the penalty that we will one day pay, is like mighty waters that are rising to engulf us. But if we're forgiven of our sins, then those mighty waters never reach us. Another way that the psalm describes the joy of being forgiven of our sins is that. We are protected. We're protected from trouble. And we read that in verse 7. Verse 7 says, You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The person that God loves, the person that has their sin forgiven, is in a hiding place. They are protected from trouble. Even children know what it is to have a hiding place. They run and hide, particularly when they know that trouble is coming. And they run and hide under the the bed covers, thinking no one will find them there. It's usually the first place that I look if they're trying to run from me. But they think it's a hiding place, that they'll be able to get away from trouble, that they will be protected, it says there in verse 7. You'll be in a hiding place and protected from trouble. And that's what it is to have your sins forgiven. You are happy because the trouble that you deserve for your sins the punishment that you deserve, the wrath of God that you deserve, that is coming for you, you are hidden from, you are protected from. And that's a wonderful thing to experience. That makes you happy. That trouble will not reach you. That The mighty waters will rise, but they will not reach you because you are in your hiding place. You are protected from trouble. And then another image that is given for us as to the wonderful joy of having our sins forgiven is that we will sing songs of deliverance. Being forgiven means being surrounded with songs of deliverance. And we read that in verse 7 as well. It says, you are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And then we see that it also brought out for us in verse 11. It says rejoice in, the lad, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. What do you associate happiness with? Well, for a lot of people, people associate it with singing. You see children, they, when they're really happy, they're sitting there in the, on their bed and they're not, they've no one really around, but they're sitting there and they're singing away. Why? Because they're happy. And if we are forgiven of our sins, then it is logical that we might burst into song, that we might sing because of the joy that we know of having our sins forgiven. Because we know that the penalty that we deserve for our sin has been paid, that it has been removed from us. So that is what it means to have our sins forgiven. It means happiness and it means that we don't have our our sins are covered, that the Lord does not count our sin against us, the mighty waters rise but they cannot come near us, that we have a hiding place, that we have a protector, that we're surrounded with songs of deliverance. It is indeed a joyous thing to have our sins forgiven. But what does it mean to be unforgiven? What does it mean to not have our sins forgiven then? And that brings me to my second main point this morning. Unhappy are those whose sins are not forgiven. Unhappy are those whose sins are not forgiven. Because this psalm, it describes the joy of being forgiven, but it also describes the terrible state it is to not be forgiven. And so we read that from verse 3 on. And the first thing we see, that being unforgiven means bones wasting away. Verse 3 says, "'When I kept silent, my bones wasted away.'" through my groaning all day long. It's a terrible thing to have your body wasting away, to have bones wasting away. Think of people with cancer in their bones and it just is wasting their bodies away. And that's what it is to not have your sins forgiven. There's this bodily wasting that goes on. As what happens in your life? Verse 3 says, through my groaning all day long. As you are conscious of your sin, you groan about your sin. You recognize you are a bad person, that you've done evil things and that you deserve to be punished. And what comes out? Groans. And what do groans produce? Produces a wasting in your body, a bodily pain that comes. Just like a child, if it knows it's going to be punished for its sins, that it's waiting for daddy to come home to deal with them, it spoils the rest of their day. They groan all day. They're miserable because they know that punishment is coming for what they've done. Mum has said, wait till Daddy gets home. And they groan all day long because they know that the bad punishment that they deserve is coming. And that's what it is to not have your sins forgiven. You're conscious of your sins and you groan all day long and you have this bodily fatigue. And it's expressed to us in other ways as we follow down through from verse 3 as well. We see that being unforgiven means God's hand is heavy against us. We read for verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. God's hand, his hand of wrath, The suffering and pain that we can experience in this life for our sin, but also the worry and the fatigue that comes of considering our life in the next life if we are unforgiven of our sins. We know God's hand upon us. And it's interesting the way it's described there. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. It's a heavy hand. It's not a light hand of God against us for our sin. And it's day and night. It goes on and on. You're awake in the night about your sin. You're awake through the day and thinking about your sin. And it's heavy upon you. And how is it describing it? My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When you're not forgiven of your sins, it weighs you down. And your strength is sapped as in the heat of summer. We know summer in Australia, a lot better than some parts of the world. But it's not too bad here in New South Wales, but there's a few nights of the year pretty much at our house. We sleep in the top story uh, of our house, Jill and myself, and that bedroom can get very, very hot in the heat of summer. And it's so hot that you don't want to sleep, you don't want to do anything. You don't want to be awake, you don't want to be asleep, you just don't want to be because of the heat of summer. And that's what it's like to not have your sins forgiven. Your strength is sapped. You feel useless. You can't concentrate on other things because you're overwhelmed with your sin. Just consider if you murdered someone or you committed some great crime against someone. It just consumes you if you've got a conscience at all. You just can't do anything. You can't concentrate on your work anymore because all you're thinking about is the sin that you have committed That's what it means to be unforgiven of your sin. It means to be useless with your body. That your spiritual state, your mind, actually affects the rest of your body. That your bones feel like they're wasting away. That your strength feels like it's sapped as in the heat of summer because God's hand is heavy against you. And another way that it's expressed is by just saying that it brings many woes upon us, being unforgiven of our sins. In verse 10 we read, Many are the woes of the wicked. Verse 10, many other woes of the wicked. The word there in Hebrew, woe, can just be translated pain. Many other pains of the wicked. We all know what pain is. And that's what it is, to be unforgiven of our sin. To be wicked and having our sins counted against us means to have pain in our life. And that can be the pain of the consequences of sin naturally in this world, but also the pain in the world to come. Many of the woes. If we consider that The suffering in hell goes on for all of eternity. That's a pain that is indeed many. It goes on and on and on. And that's what it means to then be unforgiven. So we see the state of what it means to be forgiven and we see the state of what it means to be unforgiven. So the question is, how do you get to have the joy of being unforgiven? How do you get to be happy? How do you get to be blessed? And so that The unforgiven state is describing you, the forgiven state is describing you, and the unforgiven state is not describing you any longer. How do we do that? Well, most of the religions of the world would teach you that you have to be a good person. You have to do good works to experience such joy, to experience such blessedness. But my third main point is something different from that which comes from this psalm this morning. And that is that happy are those who confess sin. Happy are those who confess their sin. And we see this shown to us a number of times in this psalm. We read, firstly, that we, if we are to be forgiven of our sins, then we shouldn't be deceitful. We read that in verse 2, Psalm 32, verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. If we are forgiven of our sins, if we are godly people, then we are no longer deceitful people. What does that mean? What is being spoken about in verse 2 when it says we are no longer a spirit who, in, in whose spirit is no deceit? We're no longer deceiving ourselves about our sinful state. People love to deceive themselves and say, oh, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not unforgiven. And we deceive ourselves. We know deep down that we are. But we deceive ourselves. And we try to deceive God that he somehow owes joy into our lives. But we're deceiving ourselves because we are indeed sinners. And then we mustn't keep silent. If we're to confess our sin, we must acknowledge that it is there. We mustn't be deceitful any longer. But then we must not keep silent. And that's what we read in verse 3. It says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When you're unforgiven, you keep silent. Your bones groan. But you keep silent. So if you're you're going to be forgiven, you mustn't keep silent. And instead, you must acknowledge your sin, as it says in verse 5. Then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. We have to move from being deceived and silent to acknowledging our sin and not covering up our iniquity anymore. So we aren't deceiving ourselves about it anymore and saying, no, I'm not a sinner, and it's all okay. We're not trying to cover it up cover it up with good works or cover it up just in our mind by denying the obvious. And then we acknowledge it and confess it, as it says in verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. If we are to be forgiven, we must confess our transgressions. And who do we do that to? Do we say that I'm a sinner to, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's to a friend, maybe it's to the pastor of the church. Is that the person that you're meant to go to? If you want forgiveness of sins, you confess them, yes, but you confess it to another person on this planet. No, that's not what the text says. The text says again and again that if we are to acknowledge our sin, if we're to confess our sin, it has to be to God. We read that in verse 5. It says, then I acknowledge my sin to you. Who's you? God, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. After all, he's the one that you've sinned against. He's the one that you need forgiveness from. So you must go to him. You don't go to a priest at a church somewhere. You don't go to a friend. You don't go to a spouse. You don't go to your mum or your dad to confess your sin against God. You go to God himself. And if you do that, if you pray to God, then you experience forgiveness of sins. And that's what the psalmist David actually encourages people to do. In verse 6 he says, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. We need to pray to God, not to St Peter, not to somebody else. We need to pray to God if we are to be forgiven. And if we do that, then God forgives us the guilt of our sins. And that's what we read in verse 5. It says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. As soon as the psalmist confessed his sin to God, instead of deceiving himself, instead of bearing under the load of the sin and having the heat of summer sapping his strength, as soon as he acknowledged his sin to God and confessed it to him, God forgave the guilt of his sin. Just like that. How is that possible? How can God just sweep it all under the rug, cover over the sin, no longer count the sin against the psalmist because he confessed it? How can it just be removed like that? Well, the New Testament helps us to understand how that happens, and it happens because of our faith in Jesus, our faith in God. And the word trust actually comes up in this passage as well. Verse 10, it says, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you trust that God sent him to die in your place, then your sin is put upon his shoulders and his good works are transferred to your shoulders and you go free. And so if you simply confess your sin, acknowledge it, stop deceiving yourself, then Jesus takes the penalty that you deserve. He pays the debt. The debt doesn't just get wiped off the books. Jesus comes in and pays that debt that you deserve. Those mighty waters that should have reached you no longer reach you. The trouble that should have reached you no longer reaches you. The pain that you deserve, the woes that you deserve for your sin are all poured out on Jesus Christ instead. And so, by your simple confession, payment is made by Jesus Christ. And so you become what is described in verse 11. You become righteous. Verse 11 says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Wonderful truth, you were previously a sinner, you were previously unforgiven, but now you are declared righteous, now you are declared upright because of your trust in Jesus, because of your trust in God, because of your confession of sin. God has done the rest and you are forgiven. And that then means you can be happy. You can rejoice as it tells you there to rejoice. You are blessed. No longer is your body sapped of strength, because you can go out with a spring in your step knowing you are forgiven, that you do not have to do all these good works like go to church, be baptized, be nice to other people, give to the poor, all these good works that religions love to throw upon you. You don't have to do those to be forgiven that simple confession that you made brought forgiveness into your life through Jesus Christ. And now you do those good things like go to church and read your Bible and pray and and love those around you, not to be saved, but because you are saved. You do it with joy because you are a happy person, because you are forgiven. That is why you do those things. So do you know What it is to be unhappy is your unhappiness because your sins are unforgiven. Have you experienced the pain of sin as David has described in this passage? This is one of the best passages I have, as I said before. When someone comes to me in turmoil about their sin, they relate to verses 3 to 5. They can see that that is describing them. and They feel the guilt in their life of their sin. Is that you? Have you experienced that? Have you experienced the anguish of knowing you are a sinner and the penalty that comes with such sin? Or have you just tried to deceive yourself that you're not that bad a person? Are you even doing that right now? As you listen to me, you're saying, oh, I'm not that bad. I don't need forgiveness because I've never actually done anything wrong. Well, that's not the person that is happy as described by the psalmist. He says, in whose spirit is no deceit. We can't deceive ourselves any longer about our sin. We have to acknowledge it. And so have you done that? Have you confessed your sin to the Lord? Or are you still trying to earn forgiveness from God with that useless body as it is sapped like in the heat of summer of its strength? Are you still trying to earn your forgiveness or instead, have you gone to God and acknowledged your sin, confessed him, your sin to God and trusted that Jesus Christ died for you? And so then have you experienced the joy of God's forgiven, knowing that hell won't reach you, knowing that you have a joy that is far better than any other joy in this world, far better than any chocolate, that can, uh, the joy that chocolate can provide, that sick feeling that comes with chocolate, Is associated with a type of pleasure that is so small in comparison to the joy that we get from having our sins forgiven. There is no downside to having our sins forgiven. There are so many reasons for joy and so do you rejoice as someone who has previously acknowledged that they were unforgiven and now has moved to forgiveness of sins through confession. And so then you... Are you someone that rejoices in the fact that you have forgiveness of sins? Do you sing as someone who is upright in heart? Well, let us speak to our God now. Let us pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for its honesty about the human condition that without forgiveness of sin, we are in a terrible state. We are overwhelmed with guilt and with a sense of the judgment to come. But, Lord, we thank you that we can be blessed and have forgiveness of sins, can have our sins covered, can have our sin not counted against us any longer if we will simply confess. So, Lord, we pray that everyone in this room will do that, if they have not already. May we acknowledge our sin. And as Christians, may we continue to acknowledge that what we have done is wrong, May we not deceive ourselves, but confess our sin to you on a regular basis and experience the true joy of being forgiven and rejoice as a result. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.